All right, this morning we're in Philippians chapter 2 again, and we're in verses 1 to 11. Now, last week we focused on verses 1 to 4. This week we're going to read through the whole section of 11 verses, but we're going to focus on verses 5 to 11. So I'll, I'll read that for us now. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, because he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is one of the most glorious and famous passages in the New Testament. Many people think that verses 5 to 11 were a hymn sung by the early church that Paul is quoting from. That's debated. It's kind of funny to me how many commentators spend so much ink trying to decide whether or not it was a hymn. It's like some people say it's a hymn. Some people say it's exalted prose, like poetry. In it's amazing, and it's all about Jesus. So whether it was a hymn or not, more songs have been written about this than probably any other. I mean, these, these realities... Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is one of them. Maybe I'll quote it later. But uh, reflecting on realities like this. But I'm not going to start this morning in Philippians 2. I just want to go back to Genesis for a little while. I don't know. It seems like every other sermon we go back to Genesis 1 to 3. It's like the fountainhead from which every theme of the Bible flows. At the beginning of the Bible story, in Genesis 3, we read a tragic tale that hopefully most of you are pretty familiar with by now. It might not seem like a tragedy to us. There's no bloodshed in Genesis 3, not yet. That starts in Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7. The tragedy we read about, though, is the fountain of all future violence and tragedies. There, Adam, the first human ever created, he was made in the likeness of God, in God's image. His job was to represent God's rule, like a little king, representing the rule of the big king in creation, and to reflect God's character in the world that God had created. 
along with his wife, Eve. And yet, instead of doing that, Adam and Eve, they joined a rebellion against their creator, God. The little king wanted to be like the big king in a way that he was not intended to be. He wanted to know the difference between good and evil on his own terms. He wanted to call the shots. He wanted to take God's place and know right from wrong apart from the Lord. They wanted to be their own little gods, basically, and their own right. So, by trying to be wise in their own eyes and disobeying God's word, they became fools. They broke the word of the Lord. They listened to the word of Satan, the devil, the great serpent. And when they did that, they cut themselves off from God, willingly. They plunged all creation under the rule of the word, the one to whom they had listened, Satan. Brian covered this a couple weeks ago. Satan. They, instead of listening to the word of the big king, they listened to the word of something else, the craftiest of the beasts of the field, the devil, Satan, masquerading as a snake. But God promised one day, Genesis 3.15, he would send a son of Eve who would come and defeat Satan and all his works. And this son, he would overthrow the rebellion that Adam had started against the Lord. He would defeat death by his resurrection. He would defeat sin and rebellion by the power of a perfect, obedient, sinless life. He would defeat Satan, the devil, by listening to God's word instead of breaking God's word. He would be a last Adam, a final Adam. He would not grasp for equality like God, with God, like Adam the first. He wouldn't grasp to be God. Here's the amazing reality that we're going to see in our passage today. Jesus didn't need to grasp for equality with God, like Adam and Eve tried to do. Why? He was God. The last Adam was God himself, stooping down from his heavenly throne and coming to be like us. So that's what we're going to see today in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. It's Genesis 3 in reverse, okay? And so if you're wondering, like, what, what, do you, what do you mean, Genesis 3 in reverse? Stay tuned. I'll show you from the text. We're going to work through the text in three steps. First, we're going to look at the identity of Jesus. Who was this being who became like us? Second, we'll look at the humiliation of Jesus. We'll look at how Jesus humbled himself and became a man. And third and finally, we'll look at the exaltation of Jesus. So the identity of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, he was laid low that he might be third made high the exaltation of jesus god raised him up to be higher than every other name in the universe so first the identity of jesus verses five and six look at that with me if you have your bible open in your relationships with one another paul says have the same mindset as christ jesus 
So think like Jesus. Who, how did Jesus think? Well, then he explains. He was in very nature God. Did you catch that? Being in very nature God. Literally, the word used here is the word form. Your translation might have form. That's good. He was in the form of God. It doesn't say that he was like God. It doesn't say that he was similar to God. It says he was in the very form of God. The very substance of godness, of divinity, was in Jesus. He was divine. He was God. The God who made heaven and earth. Jesus was one with him. Your translation might say, although he was in the form of God. If you've got your Bible open, whose translation says, although he was in the form of God, or though he was in the form of God, there in verse 6? Maybe. Does anybody's translation say, being in very nature God? That's what mine has, the NIV. Um, some translations will say, uh, because he was in the form of God. And I actually think what all of them say he's in the form of God. And it could be any of the three context tells you. And I've become convinced that the, the, the translation that makes the most sense in the context is, that, is the translation because he was in the form of God, especially in light of what we see Adam did in Genesis 3. If we see that as the background to these verses, which I think we should, I think we should look at Philippians 2 against the backdrop of what Adam tried to do in Genesis 3. And if we do that, I think because he was in the form of God makes the most sense. All right? Because Jesus was in the form of God, he did not do what Adam did. I'll say that again. Because Jesus was in the form of God, he did not do what Adam did. He didn't need to grasp for equality with God. He was God. But instead of grasping for what he already had, equality with God, what did Jesus do? That's what we are going to look at next. He left his heavenly throne and he grasped human likeness, equality with us. Instead of grasping for what he already had to be equal with God, he was in the form of God. He left his throne and he became like us. That's the second point this morning, the humiliation of our Lord Jesus. I'll read verses 7 and 8 now. In these verses, we're going to see um, two, two verbs stating two things Jesus did. Okay, First, he made himself nothing. Your translation might say he emptied himself. Second, he humbled himself himself. So we're going to look at verse 7 first. He made himself nothing, or he emptied himself. And we're going to see that he did that in two ways. First, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, or the very form of a servant. And second, he humbled himself, or emptied himself by, I mean, he uh, emptied himself uh, by being made in human likeness. So, 
Jesus, the one who is in the form of God, being in very nature God, took on another nature, another form. He took the form of a servant. Do you see that there in verse 7? He took the form of a servant. And second, he was made in human likeness. Humans had tried to be like God in their rebellion, but God came to save rebels by being made like them. He took on humanity to rescue humanity. But, hear me really clearly here, okay? Jesus did not empty himself or lose his divine personhood when he took up manhood. And this is entering into the mystery of what Christians have called for 2,000 years the incarnation. It's like the in, the word carnation is flesh, in fleshing of the Son of God. He's getting flesh. He's becoming a man, the incarnation. So if you ever hear that big word, incarnation, that's what it means, Jesus becoming a man. The mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus became what he was not while remaining what he was. That's how the ancient creeds have said it again and again. He became what he was not while remaining what he was. The incarnation is addition, no subtraction. He became fully man while remaining fully God. He didn't switch mentally between God mode and man mode either, okay? Jesus was not schizophrenic. No. In becoming a man, he chose not to use, not to exercise those divine attributes that would render him superhuman. I'll say that again. Jesus was not superman. He got tired. He fell asleep in a boat. He got hungry. He needed to eat. He asked the Father to help him constantly. Instead of retaining his, the, his divine powers on earth, Jesus chose to stoop and empty himself of his throne his heavenly position of the powers of, he used to create the world, the universe, and to take up full humanity. He was a little baby. This little baby wasn't healing people yet. As some people, some, some traditions or stories, mythical stories were made about Jesus as he's like playing and the, his friend gets hurt or something and he like, Heals her. He makes a bird out of sand, and then it flies. You know, these things were made up. This is not the Jesus. He's growing in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. He's learning wisdom. He was a baby. He had to learn to speak. He was born to a poor family. He's laid in a cattle trough, not even a crib or a bassinet. No, remaining who he was, Jesus took on flesh and made it his own. He took up all the limitations of being a human creature 
and. So then you're like, how does he walk on water? How does he heal the sick? How does he raise the dead? How does he do all the amazing things that he did? Well, you know what came down upon him at his baptism? The life-giving, all-powerful spirit of his father. And then he begins his ministry. Jesus did everything he did by the power of the spirit of his father. He lived a life as a man 100% committed to doing God's will. And he was filled with the spirit that made the universe from his supernatural birth by the power of the Holy Spirit to his resurrection from the dead by that same life-giving spirit, Jesus' ministry was by the power of a spirit-driven life. Constantly in prayer, constantly reading the spirit-inspired word, constantly in touch with God's will so that the spirit can tell him, Philip, I saw you, by the spirit, with a vision, sitting under this tree, okay? And if you don't know which passages I'm referencing, just as you read the New Testament, be in tune with how much Jesus is in touch with the Holy Spirit. He laid aside his divine power for a time and became a man totally, totally dependent on the spirit of his Father. Now let's look closer at the statement in verse 8 that Jesus took on the form or nature of a servant. When we look at Jesus' life, we can just see, as you read it, that he became a servant, constantly healing people, even when he's exhausted, a life totally devoted to others, taking up a towel. Right before he went to the cross, he filled a bowl with water, and walked around and washed the dirt off his disciples' feet, just like a household slave would have. He comes to Peter, and Peter's like, get your hands off me, Jesus. You're not touching my feet. And Jesus says, basically, you have to let me serve you. If you're not willing to let me serve you, if you won't let the king wash your feet, how are you going to let the king clean your soul on the cross? The feet is just the beginning, Peter. I have to make you clean from the top of your body to the core of your soul. You must let me serve you. Only Jesus can make us clean. He came to service his life, and Jesus drew the template or the pattern for this servant-like ministry that he had. How did Jesus know that this was who he was supposed to be? He read his Bible constantly and he saw his ministry in isaiah and other places but in particular isaiah 52 and 53 we learn of the servant-like ministry of jesus in isaiah 52 verse 13 we learn that there's this guy called a servant who's god's going to send to rescue his people and that this servant being talked about he'll be high and lifted up or high and exalted we see that in Philippians 2, verse 11. It happens after the resurrection. The servant is high and lifted up. Jesus is lifted up, exalted, given the name above every name. But Jesus, the one, Jesus, the one 
who is high and lifted up, before he's high and lifted up at the resurrection, he's high and lifted up in shame on a cross. And that is described at the tail end of Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 53. So if you want, you can turn there. Isaiah 53, um, I'm going to read verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, this servant character, will justify many. To justify someone means to declare them to be in the right. He's going to justify many and will bear their iniquities. How do you declare righteous somebody who has iniquities? You bear them so that they don't have them anymore. You take them away. That's what Jesus will do, according to Isaiah 53. He bears the sins of his people and of everyone who trusts him in his body as a sacrifice. He is the sin bearer. Philippians 2 goes on to unpack this more in verse 8. Look there with me now. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you remember Jesus praying? Maybe you remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was arrested and brought to the cross. He's praying and great drops of sweat are pouring down and he even starts to sweat blood. Carl can describe that medical condition. I don't really know how that works, but you can do it. I've heard it happens under great stress. Father, is there any other way? Please take this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup of suffering. I don't want to do it. But I do want to do it if it's your will. Not my will, but yours. And Jesus knew it was God's will. He submitted himself on earth to his father. Instead of disobeying his father in a garden, like the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, instead of breaking God's will, breaking God's word, Jesus, the last Adam, who had equality with the father, he bowed to his father's plans. He went humbly to his death. He knew this was God's will. Why? Because he read his Bible, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And so even as he's wrestling, is there any other way, Father? Not my will, but yours be done. And so not for his own sin, but for the sins of his people, for the sins of you and I, Jesus went to the greatest moment of humbling we could imagine. Death on a Roman cross. How many of you like suffering for something that someone else did? It doesn't feel fair. I don't want to pick up the toys that my younger sibling left in my room. I, that's not my fault. It's not fair that I should do that. Why do I have to clean up your mess? Do it yourself. Pay your own debts. But if you're a servant, your job is to clean up everybody else's mess, right? Kind of. A servant's job is to clean the toilets, to wash the feet, 
to clean up dirty dishes, to change diapers that they didn't soil. A servant serves for the good of others at great cost to themselves. When you take on the role of a servant, you humble yourself and you serve just like Jesus. And what is so amazing about Jesus serving is how high he was, the form of God, in comparison to how low he stooped. Death on a cross. Jesus, the, the king to whom tens of thousands of angels in heaven would bow. He stooped and he washed feet and then he bowed his head on the cross. Jesus, the one whose words spoke the universe into existence, he chose to let his creation destroy him because it was our only hope. Jesus, the one who had never sinned, he'd never done anything wrong. He hung in shame on the cross for sins he did not do. And as he hung there, and as the blood trickled down the wood, dripped on the ground, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. His blood was our only hope. His dying, he was dying in the place countless millions who would trust him he was serving the world jesus the servant was serving the world on the cross giving us himself all of himself emptying himself philippians he emptied himself and became obedient to death humbling himself emptying himself of life and breath so that we might have the hope of eternal life on the other side of the grave, to defeat death for mankind. Death that started in Genesis 3 under Adam's terrible choice. Jesus had to, the last Adam had to go through death as a man and rise again on the other side victorious. To defeat sin for us, Jesus had to take it on himself to die under its punishment and to rise again, leaving it in the tomb to defeat satan the great dragon the enemy of all that is good and right and true jesus had to use satan's greatest weapon against him the weapon of death see satan he wants to turn the world against god so that he can watch the world burn under god's wrath god must punish evil he must destroy rebellion and so if satan can hurt god can get at god he'll do whatever he can to turn god's good creation against him so that god must judge but satan didn't know god's plan maybe he did we don't really know that from the bible but what a plan it was satan was overthrown by the God who made creation. The God of creation entered into his world in the person of his son, and he, he entered in to be destroyed by his own punishment against sin. Only a triune God can do this, right? Can absorb wrath against sin in the person of his son while the father pours out the punishment. And then the son rises from the dead holding the keys of death in his hands. 
Revelation 1, 17 to 18, the risen Lord Jesus stands and says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades, death and hell. He holds the keys, not Satan anymore. He ripped them out of Satan's grasp at the resurrection. The great prince of death, Satan, has been damned to hell. And the resurrection sealed his fate. Jesus Christ lives. And Satan's days are numbered. He's coming soon. And now we come to the third point. Verses 9 to 11 give us the exaltation of Jesus. Therefore, says Paul, because Jesus gave up everything, because the God-man humbled himself to the cross, therefore God raised him up to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether that tongue is in heaven or on earth or under the earth. They will all bow to the glory of God the Father. So on the cross we see Jesus emptied himself of everything, of his strength and his honor, of his dignity, of blood and tears and his very life breath. And so because he became the lowest, he became like an empty cup waiting to be filled again. And three days later, his father would fill Jesus' empty body with resurrection life. In the resurrection, God, the Father, made Jesus, who became the lowest, he made him the highest. Because he emptied himself completely, God filled him to overflowing once more. On the cross, they called him a blasphemer, a pretender, pretending to be God. They called him a hypocrite. They called him a liar. They called him a demon-possessed madman. But Jesus, he just hung there and he took it all. All the names and all the mocking. And three days later, his father vindicated him. He is who he said he was. And he did it by raising him from the dead and by giving him a name. The name that is above every name. Now listen, many years before this, Okay, remember Genesis 3, 15. We're waiting for a man to be born from Eve's line who's going to defeat the rebellion started by Satan, who's going to be a, 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 another Adam, who's going to rescue us from death and defeat the devil. We're waiting for this man. And we get to hear that he's going to come from the line of Abraham a little bit further in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And one of your descendants is going to bless all nations of the world. You're going to have a great name, the name of Abraham. Look, we're still talking about Abraham today. That's a pretty good name, great name, right? Well, one of Abraham's sons eventually, well, great-great-great-great-grandsons, was the king David. And God made a promise to David, in 2 Samuel 7, that one of David's sons would sit on an eternal throne and that this son would be given a great name. Genesis 11 is a tragic story where all nations of the earth are trying to make a great name for themselves, and God humbles them. But this son, the son of David, will be given a great name. The son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David, he will be given a great name. Okay? 
you know where I'm going with this. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, God, through David, David's writing about his son. And he says that his son is going to be his Lord somehow. And he's going to be a priest. And he's going to sit on an eternal throne, but it's not just any throne. It's going to be a throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. David, speaking by the Spirit of God, saying these things, prophesying what his great son with a great name will do. Psalm 110. Read it when you get home. And now we see Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the, the, the son of Mary, the daughter of Eve, the son of God. He receives this name, the great name. And that's the last. This, this brings us to the last and the most amazing thing that I want you to see about this passage, about the name that is given to this son of David. Paul saying, quoting from Isaiah 45, so I'd like you guys to turn to Isaiah 45. If you have your Bibles, this will be very helpful. Isaiah 45, 23, Isaiah says, or Paul, quoting from there, says, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, in Isaiah 45, here's what's going on. Here's the setting. God is telling Israel how all these idols, these false gods that they love to worship, they're worthless. In verse 20 of chapter 45, he says they can't save. They can't save you. Like, can you imagine? I mean, this is great tragedy, actually. But in the Greek refugee crisis, um, the, all these people are leaving Iran and they're sailing across on inflatable ships with, with people smugglers, basically, to go to Greece. And a lot of the life jackets that are given to them are not filled with flotation material. They're filled with paper because it's cheaper. They think that this life jacket will save them if this boat capsizes, and many do, but it's a false hope of salvation. They've been lied to. The false gods cannot save. They're not real. Then, verses 21 to 25, we read this. I'll read this from Isaiah 45. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none beside me. So I'm the only Savior. And then he says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, not just Israel. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in allegiance a word that shall not return. Listen to the word. To me every knee will bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, only in Yahweh, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In Yahweh, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified shall be made righteous, and shall glory. Three things here. God says, I'm the only Savior. No other gods can save. Turn to me for salvation. Everybody, everywhere. Not just Jews. All the ends of the earth. Second, God says, to me, every knee will one day bow, and every tongue will one day swear allegiance. 
That's the second part of Isaiah that Paul puts in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. We'll see that in a second. Third, God says, only in Yahweh, only in the Lord shall Israel be justified and glory. I hope you see the significance of what's going on here, at least starting to grasp this. God, the God of Israel, says in Isaiah 45, I'm the only Savior. There's nobody else. None. Turn to me and be saved. Then God says, second, one day every knee will bow before me and every tongue will swear allegiance to me. This is God speaking. The Lord, God, Yahweh of Israel, none other. And finally, God says, in me and only in me can you be made righteous. Can you be justified and glory? So, all of these things that the Lord God, Yahweh of Israel says about himself, in Philippians, Paul applies them all to Jesus. Every single one of them. Jesus alone is the Savior. He saves from sin. Wait, I thought Isaiah said God's the only Savior. That's only going to fit together if you do what Paul did. Jesus is equal with God. Who being in very form God. That's the only way you can put that together. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar or he's a lunatic. Jesus is the Savior. His name means Yahweh saves. He is God's salvation. God come to save us in the flesh. Jesus is the God who's come to save us. And we're going to see in Philippians chapter 3 that Jesus is the one who we are justified in. Paul's getting to the justification. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from all the good things I do, but having a righteousness that comes by faith, that comes to, from Jesus. In the Lord, in Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Paul says, he's going to glory in Christ Jesus in Philippians. We've already seen it. We'll see it again. So we're going to be back to Isaiah 45. We need to wrap things up. Remember, Jesus became human like Adam and like us, taking on the form of our humanity while remaining equal with God. And he humbled himself to death in our place. And then he was raised and he was seated on a throne of the universe once more. But this time, something is different he has a human nature. A son of Adam is on the throne of the universe. The human race has a new leader, a new savior, a new king, and his name is Jesus. He's the name above every name, and one day everyone will bow in heaven and on earth, where the angels dwell in heaven, on earth, in the realm of humans and even under the earth in the realm of the dead where spirits await judgment, everyone will bow to Jesus. And the question is, will you bow willingly now or will you be forced to bend the knee at the end of time? So let's apply this now to our lives. In Genesis 3, we saw that Adam tried to grasp for equality with God. 
He sought to be great, to put his own worth and own opinions above his maker. And when you and I are prideful, sinful, that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Okay? We're, trying, we're following Adam, lifting our own worth, our own opinions, our own thoughts and value above God's and above others. Pride is at the root of every sin. You might not realize that, but pride is the fountain of evil. We sin when we disobey God. And when you disobey someone, it's because you think your ideas are better. Your way is right. Their way is wrong. That's pride. When it's against the, the maker of the universe. So when we disobey the Lord or when we fail to do what he calls us to do, it's pride that drives that. Human pride. And it's pride that makes us think we're above serving other people. Or that other people are beneath our love. It's pride that says, me first, my way's best. But God calls us in Philippians 2 verse 5 to run from the pride of Adam and to follow the new Adam in the way of humility. We are to have his mind, his way of thinking. So Christians, as Christians, we are called to empty ourselves like Jesus. If we have any strength that God has given us, of body, strength, of mind, if we have any status at work or in our community or at home, if we have any influence at all, wealth, power, any ability, anything we can do, we're called to use it to serve others like Jesus. He had it all. He had all the riches of heaven. He had the power that made universes the glory of God himself dwelled in Jesus. The influence that could stop waves and make mountains and raise the dead with one word. And Jesus left heaven and stooped and served. He poured out his riches on us. He poured out his power, his power for us. And using all his divine might, he stayed on the cross and died in our place. You see Jesus dying on the cross in weakness and blood, yet with a word he could have called legions and legions of angels. I mean, that in his weakness, you see strength unimaginable. And he stayed there because he loved us and he loved his Father. What love. And then there he lays in the grave. Jesus was completely empty of everything. Totally empty. Humbled, shamed, crucified. Romans wouldn't even speak about crucifixion. It was unspeakable. We talk about crosses all the time now. We wear them on our necks. It'd be like wearing an electric chair on your neck. Except that doesn't even have the stigma that the cross had. Roman citizens rarely were crucified. It was for slaves, enemies, barbarians. Jesus died like the worst, with criminals on his right and his left. 
He had absolutely nothing. His friends didn't believe in him anymore. They left him. He had nothing. Empty hands. Just like you and I, when our time comes to die, our hands are empty. We can't take anything with us. But we never had nearly what Jesus had to lose. Not even the wealthiest or the strongest or the most powerful person who ever has lived has lost what Jesus lost in his humiliation. And yet there, lifeless, in the darkness, Jesus had everything. In Jesus' emptiness, he had the promise of his Father that he would rise. And with the promise of his Father, Jesus possessed everything. He could let go of it all because he knew whose hands he committed his spirit into as he died. Three days later, the Father filled the empty body of our Savior with resurrection life, making his body new, but leaving the scars so that the man on the throne has scars in his hands. It's amazing. And he raised him Nobody could have ever gone lower than our Lord Jesus, and now, by God's power, no human has ever been or will ever be higher. Jesus is the Lord. And so it is with all of us who follow the risen Lord Jesus. The lower that we go as a church and as individuals in service to others, the more that God's power will fill us with strength to serve, the power to love the humility to seek the good of others above our own. And the lower we go, and the more we die to ourselves in love for others and for the Lord, the higher we will be raised in resurrection life when the Lord Jesus comes. On the day of resurrection, there will be a great reversal. The last will be first. The poor will be made rich. The weak will be seen to be strong. Those the world called fools for following Jesus will be seen as wise. Those who emptied themselves and spent themselves tirely in service to their families and to others and to the Lord Jesus, they will be filled to overflowing. Those who sowed bountifully for the kingdom, laboring to advance the gospel with no recognition for years, with very little fruit, they will reap bountifully. Those who ran faithfully, they will receive a crown of righteousness. Those who labored to the end, they will hear the Lord's well done. And it will all be to the glory and praise of the God of resurrection power and life. When we are empty, he gets the glory for filling us. He's the one who calls us to empty ourselves of self-reliance. I can do it myself. I don't need help. That he might fill us with his strength. And when we do, he gets the glory and we get the help. He calls us to empty our wealth out in service to others and in the work of his kingdom that he might give, uh, get the glory in filling our hands with more and with eternal riches in the new creation where we get all our needs supplied with his eternal riches and glory. He calls us to use our time to serve others and to trust that he will repay every moment spent with eternity. He calls us to use our strength to serve others and to trust that at the end of the day, he will 
He will strengthen us again and provide for all we need. And finally, Jesus calls us to die as those who have spent ourselves empty for his service, having nothing, holding nothing, yet the promise, except the promise, that we have everything if we die with him. To live is Christ, as Paul says, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who are eager to go low like Jesus, to serve, to humble ourselves, to show love like our Savior. I pray that you would equip us to love in radical ways like, our, like Jesus loved and that you would fill us with strength to do so so that you alone would get the glory. Lord, I pray that you would be with us for the rest of this week, this coming week. I pray that in our weakness, you would be our strength, and that we would have the mind of the Lord Jesus together as a church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.